episode 51 of Poetry Says. We are past the half century now and I'm really, really excited to bring you this interview with Toby Fitch, who I caught up with while I was in Sydney. I'm still in Sydney now actually and yeah, just took the opportunity while I was up here to catch up with him in person. And I wanted to start out by saying I really apologize for the background noise in this one. I took my new mic out into the world and it's a lot more sensitive than I thought. And the room that we were in kind of got louder and louder as time went on. So I apologize for that. You can still hear Toby, which is great because he has so many interesting things to say. We start out by talking about a topic that I have kind of approached as a reader very tentatively um, and without much success, and that is the poetry of Rambeau. Rambeau is a poet that I feel like I need to know, should know, want to get more in touch with, but yeah, just not really sure how to how to approach him. And so having Toby kind of walk me through the Rambo story here was so helpful. And that led on to a really interesting discussion of Toby's own work. So Toby's uh, latest book is called The Bloomin' Notions of Other and Beau. And it took me until 4.30 the next morning when I was lying awake to realize, ah, The Bloomin' Notions of Other and Beau is the illuminations of Arthur Rambo. Okay, I got it. I got there in the end. So it says here on the back of the book, the collection is one in which Toby Fitch turns upside down, hijacking and reversing the content of Rambo's illuminations. So we talk um, in depth about a couple of the poems in that collection and some other poems that Toby's written. And then we start talking about um, the idea of permission and finding the keys to poetry and it's really interesting at this point because Toby says that he needs to find the keys anew each time which I thought was fascinating to hear from somebody who holds you know quite an important role in uh, Australian poetry being the poetry editor of Overland and then towards the end I do ask him you know what are you looking for in the poems that come across your desk at Overland and unfortunately, this is a point where people start walking in and out of the room. But I hope that you can get something out of his answer there as well. The first question I want to ask you takes is going to take a little bit of setup. One of the things that I've been finding through talking to lots of different poets on the podcast and also just in life in general is that something that we're all a little bit ashamed of is the holes in our reading those people that we feel like we should have read and we just haven't got around to it mm -hmm. and um, one of those people for me is Rambo and so I'm coming to you as something of Rambo expert as very much a <laughs> beginner um, just to sort of say, like, where should I begin? What? How can I navigate reading this person? Because the tiny bits that I have read, I recognise as being very beautiful and moving, but I also feel like I'm missing huge amounts of context, and I'm not really sure where to go for that. Uh, I think that it's in, it's kind of impossible to approach Rambo without the myth around him. 
being a um, a wild child who gave up poetry at the age of 19, 20 and then running away and essentially travelling the world through various means, uh, going, was it through the Dutch army to the um, uh, to Papua New Guinea and around there and, and then jumping ship and then disappearing mm-hmm. um, and also then, you know, and then finding his way back to Europe somehow and then going on multiple trips to Africa as a kind of capitalist where he was running guns and being a colonialist and going into various places and, and exploring and going places where others hadn't been mm-hmm. um, from Europe or at least had but like setting up places and trade lines where others hadn't been so he had that latter part of his life after he turned 20 mm-hmm. up till when he died when he was 37 mm-hmm. um, of gangrene in his leg because he walked everywhere he walked absolutely everywhere. he walked across Europe he walked across the Alps at one stage um, right. and so he ended up getting cancer in his leg and dying but yeah so there's there's that to contend with and then there's of course the myth of him as a young voyant poet a kind of visionary poet who came up as a child genius through school and perfected all the sort of alexandrine modes of um, french poetry you know copied all his predecessors nailed all their kinds of poems you know topped every class at school in terms of writing poems and everything else that he did and then you know going going out and getting trying to get out of his stultifying life in um, Charleville-Mézières, which is the, the, the two twin towns on the border of, on, of France and Belgium, where he grew up with his Catholic mother and his, and his father had abandoned them, gone off to war and never come back. Uh, or gone off to serve, at least in the, in the army, I think, or the navy, I can't remember. But um, yeah, he, he, was, he was there with his um, younger brother, I think, and his very Catholic mother who was very strict on him but he was also super smart and he he wrote he, he got wind of the poets in Paris he wrote to them the Parnassians they were the in poets of the time they were a kind of avant-garde movement he started perfecting that style and mode as well and then he got to travel there and he traveled there on his own uh, without you know permission from his mother as a mid teenager like quite a young young boy really and was very precocious and um, uh, Paul Verlaine the sort of major lyric Parnassian poet at the time kind of took him in mm-hmm. uh, he kind of existed as, as his own entity um, Paul Verlaine not just as a Parnassian like he, he's, he's grown beyond the Parnassians but you know the, the symbolism was was around all that as well the, mm-hmm. the sort of symbolist movement and so Rambo was then taking on that kind of poetry and um, nailing it and also parodying all the other poets that were walking around in their fancy gear in Paris like parodying their poems their actual poems with very rude versions of their poems and he started to do this with Verlaine they also started to have a a sexual relationship Verlaine was in a a marriage with kids and as himself with a with a woman but Mm -hmm. um, he left that at various times and kept and went back and mm-hmm. um, was drawn in by Rimbaud who was very manipulative and kind of destructive in lots of ways so there's this there's this l- very large myth around his work yeah, as well because wow. he also he also wrote letters he had various older male figures that 
that were kind of existed within the literary world that thought his work was good, like you know teachers as well as teacher critics kind of people that um, encouraged him and wrote, wrote letters back and forth too. In those letters, he says a few key kind of phrases that give future readers a way into his work, um, or at least a way into the way he's thinking about poetry. One particular one is that language or poetry, or what he seeks to do with it, is, is a um, systematic derangement of all the senses. Wow. Derangement of the senses. Yeah, or disorganisation of all the senses. Mm -hmm. A systematic dis disorganisation or derangement of the senses. Wow. Um, and that from that's from the French translation, so you can kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, with that, there's a lot of different things that you can start to think about in, in terms of, like, synesthesia, mm -hmm. in terms of the combination of senses. And he says that at one point, one must be absolutely modern and... Yeah, it sounds pretentious, and of course it is. And he's being pretentious and precocious by saying that one must be absolutely modern. But he's also, in a time when modernity is happening, the simultaneity of everyday life, of, of life all at once. Okay. So, so, you know, of all the senses all at once, everything happening all the time. And that's also, one reading of it is that the poet must be open to all these things happening all the time. But it's also an openness to others. It's an openness to anything and everything that might go into a poem mm -hmm. too, uh, and how to write that. So it's structured, it's systematically structured into poems, if you will, mm -hmm. you know. Um, he couches it in, in a visionary kind of thing, which I, I find problematic in that he's some kind of visionary that has seen this beyond other people or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's where the myth builds up and everyone sort of looks to him for those, or not everyone, I mean, people that are really invested in Rambeau, think that's like it perpetuates that that I that he's also trying to break down at the same time mm -hmm. his his other sort of key catchphrase is I is an other or I is someone else as in capital I yeah. I am somebody or in the French je is an autre I is an other mm -hmm. and again that that has been interpreted in, in lots of different ways I just kind of want to maybe leave it as, as, as it stands rather than trying to analyse it too much. In his poetry, he wants those multiple interpretations. He, that's, that's one of the key aspects of his poetry that a lot of avant-garde movements since, whether they reference him or not, are kind of doing as well. There's this multiplicity going on in terms of the referencing and the meanings within a text and breaking down meaning making and you know the the author of the authority of the author and, and those, those sorts of aspects of a poem yeah right and so he positions himself as kind of this visionary figure for the time or oh yeah the way he yeah. talks in these letters yeah. absolutely mm -hmm. but, um, but i think he gave up because um poetry doesn't language can't do that like it's a it's a system of signs it's a system of representation you know, it can only go so far. Right, so if he's trying to be open... So he's seen the failure of the poem, yeah, you know, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, every poem is a kind of failure, um, what it sets out to do. We, we have this, and Ben Lerner has written about it recently in his book, The Hatred of Poetry, quite specifically. Um, you know, we, we, we have this sense of what a poem could or should do, but of course, it's never going to fully do that. But it's, it's, it's sort of hampered by the finitude of its terms. Yeah. 
Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, and I, I keep thinking back to um, poems of yours as you're talking about this. First of all, that openness that you're talking about, openness to all experiences and not ruling things out. Is that something that you are consciously doing when you're writing as well? I, I feel like there's there's a lot of playfulness. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And just an acceptance of, like, you could finish a poem on the word totes, for example. Yep. Um, and that's okay. That's just, that's fine and that's also legitimate. Yeah. Yep. And yep. Is, that, is that something that you've learned from reading Rambo? Is it something... I, I think comes from being drawn or having having a desire for that kind of poetry because mm-hmm. um, poetry can do all kinds of things it doesn't have to do what Rambo said it should do mm-hmm. uh, a lot of poets have done different things with some of his ideas a lot of poets have um, um, kept it really sort of simple and um, linear in its in a poem's progression and with the with the with the author at the centre of the poem as the I, you know, like unquestionably that's the person who's writing this poem as opposed to the other possibilities that might happen from um, being open to all kinds of things entering the poem, snippets of language that someone else says, you know, all the different things that might be going through your head that you're conscious and unconscious of, how, how can the poem then reflect that movement of thought? And it's an impossible thing to do as well, mm, mm. but um, there's only the attempt, the essay, the essay, the, the poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Like in your work, you use a lot of concrete forms, which are really beautiful. There's a there's a real like carefulness that needs to come after something that somebody really kindly told me at one point when I was using a lot of found language, and. What she said was, this is great, but you have to go one step further. (laughs) You You usually always have to go one or two steps further. Yeah. um, Even when you think you're there for some reason. Yeah. And part of that finding, part of that, like finding a shape for a poem or whether that be an overt shape on the page or or a sonnet Mm -hmm. um, is, does come with discovery, with the writing of it. It doesn't, doesn't always get put there first as a scaffolding for a poem to sit within, although sometimes I do that as a strict kind of like way to try something out mm-hmm. and it might stay within that form, it might then change later. Yeah. They're all gener- generative practices in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, often often with the, the shape poems, they come, they come later according to some of the content within the poem mm-hmm. and I don't like the shape to be a strict shape that says like, a, like an actual, um, you know, uh, shape poem in the in the strict definition of a shape poem is that the title and the definition of the poem is there in the visual in the visual element mm. as it is in the content because the content of mine is is really that didactic or obvious nor should the shape be it's often sort of hinting at certain themes yeah yeah um, yeah I'm thinking of uh, one of yours called all which is actually Kind of like one of those teardrop Christmas decorations. It's not a circle. Yeah, it's it's, it's yeah, it's it's shaped in a close circle. But that's yeah. just also how the lines kind of mm. started to come out when I started to push it in that direction. I had that title right from early on because I was I was mistranslating the poem from a French poem by Rimbaud mm. called Orb A U B E, which is French for dawn, uh-huh. and um, so it was 
Rambo's, one of his Illuminations, one of his prose poems called Orb, and I was, like I did with all of his Illuminations, I wrote them upside down. I wrote them backwards as a kind of, you can't even call it a translation, but it's a kind of transposition mm -hmm. where I'm playing with the content of his French and English translations within, within that shape of his poem and then seeing what will come from having a, you know, a down under version of that poem. It's a, yeah. it's a totally silly conceit, but it um, generated lots of fun poems for me to write yeah. um, and just find new poems in them. Mm. And my, the content of my poems are vastly different from his, but what came in that poem was a, um, a little narrative, uh, for whatever reason, between a father and his daughter. And of course, I'm, I may have known, I, I think I, I didn't know, but I knew that my partner wanted to have kids. By the time I sort of drafted the poem, my partner might have been pregnant, I think. But still, um, I'm projecting way into the future on, in some psychosomatic weird way in that poem of, you know, it's not autobiographical really, but I'm, I'm sort of trying to describe certain conditions that might have been there for that poem to take shape and the content of the poem. Yeah. Um, and so there's this, it's voiced from the father's perspective and he has this sort of relationship where he wants to contain the daughter in a kind of orb, I guess. Mm. You know, that's metaphorical, it's never explicit in the poem. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I could just read that poem that if you like. Because then, it, like, that would actually give it some context. Yes, please. Because um, it sounds really weird talking about it otherwise. It, it takes place all, all over different times. It starts out at noon and it goes into the, talks about the night before and anyway, I'll just read it. Okay. Orb, O-R-B. Noon when I woke, dawn long since fallen with a plonk. Or was that my child on timber floors, her massive booty surrounded by discarded labels from the discount sales she crashed at the top of the main drag last night. I remember panning cock, then chasing her beau, who cracked his marbles, or so my keys thought, loud and circular, for the sake of her, but into the city she escaped, a wave in the driveway, blue waterfall hair dishevelling among my pines. It occurred to me how, sale after sale, my company has lost its name to cheap jewels and flowers. Watching on, their speckled eyes fluttering, without noise, a collective breath decamped like a bright shadow, the vodka said, finish me off. Nothing moved my palaces, nor my child's facade. I embrace her in the orb of my debt. I love that last line, the orb <laughs> of my debt. So good. Um, that was beautiful too, how it kind of started out slowly and then as the orb got bigger, the, mm. it was faster and faster and then slow again. I, I just love the playfulness and the humour that you have, even in doing something that sounds so serious as, oh, I'm, I'm rewriting Rambo. You know, I, it sounds like this incredibly, um, yeah, really earnest activity, but it does. it's not at all. It's not no, 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 no. Well, it doesn't feel that way to me. No, it's absolutely not. Like, yeah. the, you know, the pines in there are him or me projecting that I'm going to be crying about my situation with my daughter, which is an, an ironic sort of silly approach in a way, like using that as a pun as well. Mm, mm. Um, it's just ridiculous on, yeah. on some levels, but and the keys. But I'm doing it on purpose. Well. It's self-deprecating in some ways, or at least the idea of a self that would pine mm. in the pines. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is just so much fun to be had. 
But I wanted to ask you about something that's been on my mind a lot lately, which is this question of permission. So we've done these inversions of Rambeau. There's another poem of yours, um, and this is not an unusual, but it's after Shakespeare. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, I just wondered if you ever had a moment where you felt like you were given the keys to poetry, the house of poetry, you know, you're allowed to go in and, and mess around and do whatever you want, or was it never a question of that? Oh, it's always that question, how mm -hmm. far can you go Yeah. Uh, without upsetting the whatever police? Yeah, I call them um, the poetry police. The poetry police, or <laughs> it, could, it could be all kinds of police, yeah. um, but you want to upset them on some level. I always need to find new keys. One early set of keys was, I was taking a creative writing class, it was early, very early in university, and I was like, I changed majors so I could take the creative writing classes because I was like, yeah, I'm going to write. <laughs> and, and I'd also like, had to go through the subjects, other creative writing subjects, so I could get to the poetry subject. I hadn't, I'd hardly written a poem, I'd been writing short stories, and, but I knew I wanted to write poems, I just hadn't really written them. Mm, mm, <laughs> it's yeah. a weird thing, that the way you project yourself into the future. Yeah, yeah, you and, know that does something you will do. And, and in the fiction class, you know, you, you, I don't know if, don't really do that these days, because I teach now, those creative writing classes, you don't really hand a piece of paper around and get everyone's email that way. Um, it's already, created for you but it was at that stage and um, for workshopping purposes and I created a completely new email address for myself in that creative writing in that fiction class before I'd ever taken poetry and I was like Freddie Fitch is not a poet at yahoo.com <laughs> and Freddie was the name my parents were going to call me but they ended up calling me Toby yeah. so there's this, this weird sort of play on myself there and also what I might do with myself I guess. Mm -hmm. Got to take that poetry class eventually and I'm getting to the point. Uh, the late Martin Harrison was teaching that course and he yeah. was he was a, a good influence. I remember in the one of the first classes he got us to write something and then he looked over people's shoulders or whatever and he read what I'd written and then picked it up and read it to the class and like I don't even think he asked me if he could do that and you know, he was like, this, this, yeah. listen to this. And I was like, oh God, what's he doing? Um, that ended up being my first published poem eventually and it ended up in my first collection. So that was like, I, you know, it's, it's a naive poem and you know, it's a sort of juvenilia poem when, you look, when I look back at it now. But mm. it, it gave me a huge amount of confidence. He gave me the keys to sort of go, follow that train of thought that you were playing with right there in that moment yeah, yeah and yeah. you know it often helps to have those moments I think I was probably pretty lucky to have different people recognize those kinds of things in my writing and encouraging of those things mm -hmm. so that I would keep pursuing them and and you know recognize where it's working and where it's not working mm -hmm. that kind of thing um, but I do also need to find the keys myself all the time every time every every new poem what can I do to free it, free myself up so that I can write this? And sometimes that's a game, mm. like um, with my last book, um, Bloom and Notions, where, I, like you, like you said, I did inversions of um, all of Rambo's illuminations, and um, 
you know, it was a it was a it was a big project, and I had I was I had to set up a project I felt to get through my doctorate so that I could like do the creative element of the doctorate and write essays as well. Yeah. But the um, creative element took care of itself once I set up that project in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, having having a big project though can stultify after a while. The formula gets stayed, mm. um, and so you have to reinvent that formula each time and try different things. Um, so there's conceptual approaches like that. There are you know, personal and social approaches that happen through interactions with other people and yep. communities and seeing each other's, seeing your colleagues and your contemporaries work or, or um, uh, poets you admire who are much older than you who have done this for many years and they might give you a bit of advice or you just see in their work, you read their work anew one day and it's like, oh, I'm going to try something like that. And, yeah, yeah. Um, all these things offer you offer us different keys, and mm. this is just within poetry. Then there's the whole world of things that be, could become a poem, and we have to remember that. Um, you know, we're sitting here in an empty uh, pub restaurant, and um, you can hear clanks and a bit of music in the background, and there's chalk on the wall with a menu. And there's um, very low spinning fans. Some weird ladders with fairy lights. Weird ladders as like ceiling decorations. You know, we, someone might walk through the room and say something, and then all these things could then become part of what we're sitting here thinking about somehow. Mm, mm. I mean, I've just made them something, even though that's not structured or in any way, but like we can't separate that from what we're thinking about in some ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, this is just a, a kind of blank canvas, this room. There's, there's all sorts of world events and things always going on that will be, that will be there in our unsubconscious when we're writing. Mm, mm. There'll be other things going on, our own anxieties. How can we use them in a poem? Yeah, and how do you kind of... You know, a lot of poets do, and yeah, turn so straight to their personal anxieties, and, be, and it can become soporific yeah. and, you know, uh, very much central around that person. And some of that stuff can be wonderful and offer really great things, but it can also be, you know, it can also reflect all the fractures in our thinking in the world around us and that kind of thing. Yeah, and like you say, you get, you get a new set of keys each time. As a, both a teacher and also the editor of Overland, do you sometimes, does a strategy like the one you used um, in Bloom and Notions kind of allow you to step around those two very kind of, I guess, public selves? Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I honestly have no idea what, what those public selves mean to people, whether they, whether they should or shouldn't reflect on my poetry and I mean I'm aware of it and I'm aware that those roles I, I exist in those roles I don't think those public roles have made me write in the way I write though I think that's more of a progression of many years of different approaches to poetry and sort of honing different those different approaches uh, to do different things to, to, to also play with the things that I like so that I'm you know, reading things that I like and enjoying things at the same time as writing poems. Yeah. Uh, like the, I've got a manuscript on the go at the moment, which is just like all kinds of literature that I've been reading where I've mucked about with it. <laughs> and 
made it ill and so like it's got a working title of illiterature but like it's not it's not it's not finished that probably won't exist in that title by the end of it but it's you know it's holding it together in a way so like yeah 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 it just seems like you have like i said there's this this playfulness and this humor and um yeah like you're, you're not concerned with um appearing uh or like following a certain set of like australian poetry rules i guess um, is uh, that fair to say? That's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Australian poetry rules. Um, I, yeah. It's, it's another set of police in some ways, or yeah. like fictional police. I'm not talking about poets, I'm talking about like those tropes in Australian poetry yeah. for many years that um, people identify with or don't. Mm. Um, and I don't think I don't identify with them, I just not playing to certain rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think of the, the poetry police quote-unquote as very, very much like fictional, but definitely, like you say, it's a set of tropes, it's a set of certain things that you see a lot of, and maybe these things are in poems that might tend to win a certain type of competition or get into a certain type of uh, publication or not. Um, oh, yeah. they, they they exist in the in, in large part in the mainstream of Australian poetry, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, without without go, I don't want to go too much into specifics because I don't want to take down. Yeah. You know, lots of great writing. Yeah, yeah At the yeah. same time, mm-hmm. um, just yeah, I'm following my own course mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when I was uh, looking at Bloomin' Notions, there was a, a list as there always is in the front of you know previous publications, oh, yeah. and I sort of was doing a little bit of uh, mental arithmetic, thinking, okay, well that equates to about not quite a book a year, but kind of. All right. There's there's been a lot of work going on, but I'm also aware that, that in in your own life you've also been building a family. You run the Sappho reading once a month, uh, you're a teacher, and you're the editor of Overland, and as you can probably the, well, tell... Poetry editor, so I, I just yeah, choose the poems. Sorry, poetry yeah, editor, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so I'm building up to the time-honored question of uh, where does this writing happen? How does it happen? <laughs> um, I don't see myself as prolific. It might appear that way, but I mean, my first book, Rorschach, which came out in 2012, early 2012, took me 10 years to write. Right. The first poem was that one I mentioned in a class with Martin Harrison in 2003. It was a poem called Reaching Out. And the majority of the poems probably came later in that 10 years, or were, or were certainly reworked to be better in that last phase. Um, you know, I also took a lot of time off within that 10 years. Mm-hmm writing music and playing and singing in a band and playing guitar and that kind of thing. So there was a kind of dual practice going on mm. there. Mm. But um, yeah, so that, I mean that took 10 years and then the next, I mean I've done a couple of chapbooks so they're, you know, if, if, you've, if you've got, if, if you're onto a good thing you can write a chapbook in a night sometimes <laughs> or a week or two. Or We're whatever. not allowed to say that. <clears throat> No, no, of course you can. Yeah. Um, if it's if it's good. Yeah. And um, they, you know, I I don't publish something unless I think it's good, and also some of my close readers think it's good. You right. Know, some of the, yeah. my trusted readers. Mm-hmm. 
I guess there was a, I mean, there was a chapbook in 2010, and then there was a, in 2014, there was a small book called Gerilderies, which is 30 or 40 pages of 11 line poems. So it's kind of short, but it worked as one long poem, one project. So yeah. that only took a couple of months or three or four months to perfect. Mm -hmm. Then the Rambeau book, or the, the Bloomin' Notions of Other Rambeau, took two or three or four years to come together over the course of my doctorate. But in the last year, or less than a year, half a year, I've smashed out a manuscript in the busiest period of my life. Like you yeah. say, I've got a, two girls, I've got a family, I've got two baby daughters, a partner, and I've got five part-time jobs. Five? Five. Wow. Yep. I mean, including those ones you've mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're all jobs, whether they get paid well or not, before I even get to write. And so I, I do kind of have to come up with projects and um, moments to write and, and constraints to work within because I'm already constrained but like if I have you know half an hour an hour or two at the end of the night I'll just I'll, I might have been thinking about something and an idea has come up during the day for whatever reason because I like to think about poetry a lot and like you can do you can get a lot of work done in just in the thinking and then you just have a go at it whatever that idea might be it might be one little poem I wrote which is just a, turned into a sonnet was um you know those undulating clouds that um, got into the the news recently. Um, the no. cloud. The, the, oh, it, it it was a thing for a day or two on Twitter or whatever. Yes. Um, or it was a story that I came across one day, and there were a few stories around it. Science uh, cloud aficionados had come up with a new name for a new cloud. Oh, sweet. And it was these undulating cl clouds that you look at from below, okay. and you, they have this sort of wave-like quality. Right, right. right. And I was like, oh, they're the best. And I thought, I was, I'm, I love sky imagery. And I was just like, what can I do with this? And how can I write a poem? And I found various articles with weird turns of phrases in them, just like people that weren't cloud fishing. I was trying to write about this and doing silly things without realizing they're being silly in their own language. Mm. And they, they sort of formed the spore of the poem. And then I started to look at all the famous lines about clouds in other poets' work way back. And so I just collaged a few of these things together and, and it turned into a quite a fun little sonnet. Yeah, right. <laughs> Important people decided it was time for some new clouds, colon, undulatus aspiratus, or clouds are basically just a visual representation of other things that might be going on. And then it's just a sonnet. Um, Storm-beaten mega bent by longing on the blue surface of an airy surge. Give physic to my grief, a wave to pant beneath. Oh dear, before your thunder shifted the drapery of my dreams, I wandered lonely as fuck. The, the base clouds had overtaken me. Low-anchored lover, done with loving, fountain head fountain-headed elephant, rutting the cliff face. I passed through the pores of the ocean, drank the river's driven spray and came up empty, loose, like earth falling apart now, watching you undulate from below. <laughs> yeah. I like that very much. It's silly. It's about sex, I guess. That's no, great. On some level. That's good. Um, I think we probably are at the, we're testing the limits of the, of the quietness of the pub, but poets around Australia, all my, my legions of listeners will never forgive me unless I ask you, okay. what do you want to see when when we submit to you? Submit to me? 
As in... As in to overlap. <laughs> um, do not submit in that way. Um, just good poems. I, I publish a really broad range of different poems in Overland, um, from some really straight realist memoir-like poems to like some really experimental works uh, that could be conceptual or could be um, visual or could be a whole range of different things. It, it really is about keeping whatever poem it is, its, it's internal logic has to kind of mesh on mm. some level mm. and if, if I really think the poem's great and it's, there's a line or two that's a bit off or out or something, I'll suggest that, and I want to publish it, I'll suggest changing those things and that might lead to publication. Um, so I'm definitely not open, I'm definitely very open to like um, imperfect poems because none, none of them are ever going to be perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not, not looking for boring poems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a hard thing to say. I, yeah. I don't have a doctrine mm -hmm. that I bring to the magazine. The magazine already has um, a kind of set of principles being, you know, a, a radical left-wing progressive politics journal, yeah. um, particularly in its blog and online space. And the, the magazine upholds those. And so that, that kind of, those kinds of themes can come to refract through the poetry. Absolutely, and I will look for poems that do that well. But I'm not looking for those didactic poems that tell me about how bad the current prime minister or president is. Like we don't need to be told that. Like, no, um, and I get lots and lots of poems that do that, and they send them straight to Overland because they think, oh, it's a political poem. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, all all writing is a kind of is is political on some level. Um, some of the you know, a poem has. If you think of a poem as being like a like a musical amplifier, you have various knobs on it, and different kinds of poems turn the knobs up and turn other knobs down, and that kind of thing. And I suppose some of the poems in Overland have the political knob or the, <laughs> the political knob or the you know the, those kinds of things are a little bit a little stronger at times. But that does not mean we're looking for didactic political poems. It's um, I mean, I'm also talking about all you know all, all the different kinds of you know, gender and race and, and, and everything. That, that stuff I'm absolutely got a really strong empathy for and want to see that kind of work written and um, published. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me put you on the spot with that. That's okay. It's hard to, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough put those to things together into a doctrine because, like, also the, the submissions you get are very, very broad ranging yeah. and I have to be open yeah. to them to find interesting work. Um, so it, it shifts people, people's poems will shift my perspective and, and I'll be like, well, that's a really interesting, fascinating approach to a poem, but also in a way of thinking about the world um, that I think will expand the way people think and read when they read a poem. Yeah. And so that's another way to think about what might get published. Yeah. That's yeah, you know, a, a key, you know, an open ticket to try stuff out and yeah. try something different that you know, rather than trying to fit within certain um, tried and true um, areas. Mm. You know, I'm also looking for unusual work. Yeah.
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come oh, that's okay. here. Um, yeah, I wish I could come up here and, and take some classes with you. I've learnt a lot, as I always do. So yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank it's, you. Um, it's been a pleasure.